0: And Father in heaven, right now, we just want to thank you for being a God who is God of the entire universe, yet you're hearing our prayers even at this moment. Thank you for the beautiful Sabbath. Thank you for this incredible time that we could um, just lay everything else on the altar just to listen to you. We pray and ask as we open up the word of God that you would open up our hearts and minds to minister to us to speak to us the things we need to know. And we thank you God for hearing us and being with us tonight in Jesus name. Amen. All right. How many people brought their Bibles? Put your Bibles in the air if you brought your Bibles. And all right, and if you and those who brought their Bibles, turn to the person next to you who didn't bring their Bible with a judgmental look for not bringing their Bibles to this retreat, all right? All right. Okay, so I want to share something with you. If I can get your attention, I want to share something with you. And uh, the reason why I am so blessed to be here is because I became a Seventh day Adventist when I was in college. Um, I was born and raised a Hindu, I also come from a Sikh background. Um, and so I was part of an Eastern religion growing up down in Southern California. And I had gone to college, a local college, and also the local university. And it was during that time that I was going through a lot of heart searching, uh, a time where I was very confused about life, God, religion, all these things. And I never forgot those moments that I'd be walking down the hall that I wished somebody would talk to me about God. And uh, it was through providence that God brought me into contact with the Seventh-day Adventist. Probably tomorrow I'll share a little bit about that story. And just what took place when this Seventh-day Adventist, and by the way, he wasn't even baptized. And he actually got kicked out of the academy when he was younger. And his mom had been praying for him to, to witness to somebody. And that was the answer to that prayer, right? And uh, it was so powerful because we both ended up getting baptized. In fact, I got baptized before him. So I always like to say I got baptized before the guy that brought me to the Lord, right? But um, I just have a heart for people who are in college just because I know that is an epicenter of diversity, an epicenter where identities are being formed and forged, where people are making decisions for the rest of their life. So... You have been called to a very, very special ministry. Even if nobody else in the world knows who you are, all of heaven is looking with admiration at the work that you are doing. In fact, how many people here have ever read the book Great Controversy? Raise your hand. Okay, if you never read that book, I want to challenge you. Read that book. When you read that book, you will know exactly why you are a Seventh-day Adventist. All right? In fact, what is so powerful about that book, I was just reading it a few days ago. There's a chapter on the Waldenses. It's in the early part of the book. Now, the Waldenses were a group of people who were being persecuted by the Roman church. And this group of people lived out in the wilderness. They had trained their children to memorize scripture. They built their life around biblical principles And there they remained untouched by papal power for several years. What was so amazing is they would sew clothing and they would spend several days putting certain kind of clothing together. And within the clothing was stitched scripture verses. They would send their children, their kids to the universities of their day. You can read about it when you get back to your uh, dormitory or room wherever you're staying. And what's so amazing, she says, Ellen White says that, that they so changed the direction of the universities that they were attending, that when the papal powers got hold of what was happening in these universities, they could not trace it to its source. These young people who love the scripture, who love people and above all things love Jesus, changed the current Flow of society at that time in the universities so i really believe god can do powerful things through you amen amen tonight we're going to be talking about something very special we're going to be taking a good look at uh, a very interesting individual in the bible and uh this individual is kind of a, a contradiction in terms because he is somebody who is very encouraging, someone who's very courageous, someone who's faithful to God. And on the other hand, he's someone who's very discouraged, very cowardly, and sometimes questioning whether or not God can work in his life. This man's name is Elijah. And we're going to be learning about this special individual tonight. But before we do, I'm going to ask you a question. Does anybody know who this person is. Raise your hand if you know who this person is. I mean, I will be impressed if you know who this person is. His name is Reinhold Messner. Now, this may not seem like anything impressive to you, but the reason why this guy is impressive is because he has climbed several mountains all over the entire world. Okay, let me go a step further. What makes him so amazing, he was the first person to climb Mount Everest with oxi- without oxygen tanks. He climbed Mount Everest without oxygen tanks. Do you know the top part of Mount Everest? Do you know what it's called? It's called the death zone. Do you know why they call it the death zone? Yeah, it's pretty obvious because people die up there, right? The oxygen is very thin. Storms can come on really quickly. And people just have a certain amount of time to get to the very top once they enter into the death zone. In fact, did you know still at the top of Mount Everest is over about 200 bodies still up there? There's no way to get them down. So what was so interesting about this individual is that he actually went on expedition in the 1980s. And uh, when he went up there, there was a few people who actually died in the expedition. He came back down from this expedition. And there were people who were, you know, trying to take pictures of him. There were people who were trying to interview him. And somebody says to him, they said, Didn't you know death was waiting for you at the top of the mountain? People have died on top of this mountain. Didn't you think you were going to die up there? And he responded these famous words. I didn't go up there to die. I went up there to live. In tonight's message, we're going to be taking a good look at the mountaintop experience of a man by the name of Elijah. He was somebody who was so discouraged in his life, he even thought he was going to die. But God had another purpose in mind for him at the mountaintop. Do you know in Scripture, God has two primary purposes to bringing people to the mountaintop? Here they are. Number one, to encourage us. And number two, to show us what the next few steps need to be. I want to say that one more time. To encourage us. And number two, to show us what the next few steps need to be. Everybody take your Bible. We're going to 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to be taking a good look at Elijah's mountaintop experience, and we're going to understand some powerful things from that passage. First Kings chapter 19. First Kings chapter 19. First Kings chapter 19. You there? Go ahead and say amen. First Kings chapter 19. You know, so um, interesting. every time I speak before students or I speak at a graduation or a collegiate retreat, I always like to say this. There are two things you need to know for the rest of your life. Like these are the two things you can never forget for the rest of your life. This is probably the best advice I could ever, ever give you. Here it is. Number one. Here's the first thing you need to know for the rest of your life. There is a God. Amen. And number two, you are not him right there are two things if you understand these two things for the rest of your life you're going to be good there is a god and number two you are not him elijah is going to come to understand this very experience everybody let's go to first kings chapter 19 and from the very few uh, very first few verses we're going to understand a little bit of the context and why he was on the mountaintop let's start with verse one and ahab he was an evil king but he was also going back and forth right And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, now I want you to pay attention to his key words right here, he arose and ran for his life. You know, what's so interesting about this whole passage. It starts off with Elijah discouraged, defeated. He just had a major victory, and now he is told, tomorrow you are going to die. And you're not just going to die. You're going to die in a very gruesome way. Now, Elijah ran for his life. His number one focus wasn't Israel anymore. His number one focus wasn't ministry. He was like, I got to get out of here. And now he was running terrified. You know, it's so interesting when you study out the Bible, many books in scripture start off with defeat, don't they? Or tragedy. Read the story of Ruth. Starts with tragedy. Read the story of Exodus. Starts with tragedy. The, the Hebrew babies being thrown into the river. Read, you know, different books, and you'll discover that tragedy seems to be the starting point. But what's so amazing is tragedy transitions to triumph with the power of God, right? Elijah is running. He is discouraged. He is defeated by the circumstances. Have you ever felt that way before? You ever felt defeated? You know, I really believe that there are many people in God's church who feel defeated. You know, we've gotten so used to being defeated, it's like we're just okay with it now. But, you know, God has never called us to defeat. He has called us to victory. Amen. And we're going to see what happens in this situation with this man, Elijah, somebody who was troubled by what was happening, who was discouraged. Let's continue reading. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, verse four, and came and sat under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life for I'm no better than my father's. What did Elijah pray for? Now, let me ask you a question. Did God answer his prayers? No, not that prayer, right? Where is Elijah now? He's in heaven right now, okay? What do you think his number one praise is in heaven? Thank you, Jesus, for not answering my prayer, right? He's in heaven right now because God did not answer his prayer, right? This man's in heaven. Right now, he never saw death, nor will death ever come upon this individual. He was so discouraged, and he was praying, Lord, there's no purpose to my life. I am alone in this circumstance. I'm by myself. Let me die. And this is where the story starts turning into a very amazing experience. Verse 5, then he laid and slept under a broom tree, and suddenly an angel, what? Touched him and said to him, arise and eat. He looked and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank. Who shows up to go visit Elijah in his discouragement? An angel shows up. What does this angel do for Elijah? We're going somewhere with this. He does what? Uh, What's the first thing he does? He touches him. You know, Elijah and his discouragement needed a sort of a a multifaceted ministry. The angel touches him. The angel feeds him. The angel spends time with him. And then the angel wakes him up again and says, you need to eat some more. Do you know in Scripture, it's so powerful because angels touch people, don't they? Right? Do you know who was touched by an angel? Daniel was touched by an angel. Do you know when Daniel was touched by an angel? When he was weak and had no strength. He was touched by an angel, right? You know, it's so powerful. Do you know angels showed up twice in Christ's life? Now, they were with Christ his entire life, but they showed up twice. They manifested themselves twi- twi- twice in Christ's life. Do you know the two times they showed up? At the end of the 40 days of temptation, what was the other time? In the garden. What do you notice about those two times? What's so interesting about those two times? It was when Jesus was at his weakest. So, what's my point? It seems that these angels love to manifest themselves when we are at our weakest, when we're discouraged, when we're troubled. Angels love to encourage us. And if you've ever felt discouraged, and if you've ever felt defeated, I want you to know something, that God has not abandoned you. In fact, his angels press in close to minister to us because we need it. Amen? Angels are powerful. We're told in the spirit of prophecy that ministers need to be preaching more about angels. Do you know Daniel in the book of Daniel? When he first had a dream about Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he saw the transition of nations, right? And then a little bit later, he has another vision, and he starts seeing more of the detail of that vision, and he realizes that there are individuals who be involved in the transition of those nations. A little bit further down in the book of Daniel, do you know what he discovers? Angels were involved in the transition of those nations. Daniel's mind begins to really expand as he begins to realize there is a spiritual world out there, and it is very connected to our world. Every day in all our activities, in the daily intercourse of life, angels are Present and they are in this room even now as we speak. In fact, I heard a really cool story. I heard it from the guy that it actually happened to. I went to India, and in India, there was this Christian school that was located near the heart of Hinduism. Hinduism, is, you know, I grew up a Hindu. There's over 300 million gods in Hinduism. In fact, Hindu theologians have a hard time trying to lock down fundamentals because it's so relative in different parts of India. But the second, you can probably one of the first or second most holiest places of India was in this place called Rishikesh. There happened to be an Adventist school right there. And over a thousand Hindus and Muslims were at this school. And uh, when I went there, the the president of that college began to give me various stories about what happened when he first showed up. He said when he got to that school, there was a lot of problems. A lot of demon possession was happening. In fact, it happened there one time when I was there. Maybe share that story later on. Talked about one time how his own um, dean came running towards him and said, Look, I just looked into the chapel and I saw something so crazy. I saw things in there that should not be in there. You know, I don't want to go into details. He was, I mean, there were bad things happening at this school. And then what happened, which just sort of just, man, it got worse, is that the villagers were so upset and they blamed the the college administrators, for trying to proselytize or convert these Hindu and Muslim students. And this president realizing the problem, he told the students, we need to pray. And we're not just going to pray. We're going to have a 24-hour prayer vigil. And so they set up a 24-hour prayer vigil. He told the students, he said, we're going to be praying for 24 hours straight. And do you know who signed up most of the slots? Hindus and Muslims. He didn't know what to do. He's like, I don't want them talking to Krishna, right? So this is what he said. He prayed about it, and God impressed him that if they pray in Jesus' name, he will hear him. And so he told these Hindu and Muslim students, he said, look, we want you to be part of this prayer vigil, but we're praying to Jesus. And so if you pray in Jesus' name, you can be part of this prayer vigil. And they said, okay, we'll pray in Jesus' name. So they began to join this prayer vigil. They prayed for 24 hours straight. Such a powerful thing. Now you think, okay, wow, was that the miracle? No, the miracle came a few days later. Some villagers showed up at night with firebrands and torches. Indian people. We love to burn things down. So. They showed up ready to burn this school down. They said, you are proselytizing our children. You are trying to convert them. And they were ready just to torch the entire place. The president came out, brought some of the students out. They all testified, no, no, we're not being forced to do this. And the villagers, after a few hours of negotiation, just left. Problems seemed to be solved. The next day, one of the teachers went out of the school, went to town. He ran into one of the villagers. And the villager said, You work at that school. And you can imagine the fright in this teacher's just expression. Oh, my goodness. And the teacher said, yes, I do. The villager said, come here, I want to talk to you. So he comes in. And he says this. You know, last night when we showed up to burn down your school, we were going to do it. But we left. And as we left, we told each other. We'll come back in the middle of the night from behind the school where it's open to the forest. We'll come in through there. We'll burn down the school. And the teacher's like, like. <laughs> and then the villager said, but something happened. You see, when we came around the back in the middle of the night, he said these words. He said there were these men, and that's just another word, Indian word for strong and powerful. And he said these Takara men, he said, they were all about six feet tall. And he said, they all, they were just seven feet from each other. They were dressed in military uniforms, and they completely surrounded the back of the school. And he said, they were just like in order, all of them just like this. And he said, they were just, he kept using the word takara, very, very big. And he said, they were just, just regimented right one after another, all across the back of the school. And then the man said, where did you get those guys? And the teacher realizing what was happening said, that's our army. And uh, we can call them anytime." God's deliverance is mighty. Amen? Amen. God's deliverance is powerful. And you may not know it, but angels have been part of your experience. You see, Elijah needed some angelic ministering, and God gave it to him. Friends, when you ever feel discouraged, or you feel defeated, or you feel alone, pray and ask for angelic help, and God will send heaven to help you. Amen? Now, let's continue with this story. We're going to see something very interesting. Let's continue reading. Let's go to verse 9. So he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Do you know what the complaint of Elijah was here? The complaint of Elijah was this. I am outmatched. I am outnumbered. I am outgunned here. I am by myself in this experience. God, you have called me to minister, but I am by myself. You ever felt like that? You ever feel like you're just alone in a foreign environment? And you're wondering to yourself, how in the world am I, my Christianity, going to survive in a place like that? You see, Elijah felt that way. He was discouraged. And his discouragement began to adjust his his frame of reference regarding God. You see, he believed that even God himself had left him during his experience. Discouraged, defeated, downtrodden. This disciple was going through the darkest period in his life. But you see, God had brought him to the mountaintop to do two things. Number one, to encourage him. And number two, to show him the next few steps. And let's see how God deals with this downtrodden disciple. Continue reading. Verse 11. Then he said, go out, stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks into pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. Do you know what God does with Elijah? You see, God already had the answer for Elijah. He also had the next few steps prepared for Elijah. God was actually planning out the future ministry, the next step for this confused person. But before Elijah could be ready to hear the answer, God had to first steal his heart. Friends, I want you to know something. And that is this. God already has the answer to all the problems of your life. All the questions that you may have on your heart, God already has the answer. In fact, I believe he's already ready. He's preparing the answer. But we're not ready for the answer. You see, Elijah needed a moment where he needed to be still before God. And so God gave a great display in nature. You know what's so amazing about nature? I grew up in Southern California. You want to know the biggest animals in Southern California? Chihuahuas. And pigeons, those are the biggest animals. That's what we have in Orange County, right? But when I went up to college up in Northern California, it was like, I was just like, oh my goodness, I am in the boonies here. Totally, I, I just was a country, my friend said, hey, let's go camping. And apparently he wanted to go camping every single weekend. And I, it was at that time that I began to be really exposed to the country. Right. That's when my beard began to grow out and my hair. Right. And it was like I was just like, I love the country. You know, it's it's God's second book to minister to us. Do you know when you read the story of Jonah, do you know the very first chapter of Jonah? God's talking to Jonah. Do you know what Jonah says to God? Nothing. He's not even talking to God. So you know what God does next because he's not talking and communicating with him? He sends a whale and he sends a storm. Then Elijah talks to, then Jonah talks to God. Do you know in the very last chapter, when God speaks to Jonah about saving the people of Nineveh, do you know Jonah doesn't answer God? He's upset. And so, do you know what God sends to Jonah? He sends him a tree, a worm, and a son, right? And Jonah gets it. So, oftentimes, when when we're not in that Frame of mind that just that place we're ready to hear God's voice. God will use nature and the circumstances of nature to communicate to us. Do you know the book of Job? Do you know the middle part of the book of Job is confusing? I'm going to be honest with you. Let's just be honest. You want to know why? Because it's human attempts to solve the problem of evil. That's what it is. The reason why it's confusing is because it doesn't make sense, the answers that his friends are giving. They're seeking to blame God, blame the circumstances, or blame Job. And you know what God does when he shows up to Job? He asks Job a series of questions. He says, Job, were you there when I created this world? Job, were you there when the star systems were formed? Job, were you there when I created this and this and this? And essentially what he's trying to say to Job is this, Job, if you can't understand the things of nature, you can't understand the things of God right now. And God used nature to communicate a lesson to, Eli, uh, to, to Job. And what Job ultimately needed was not so much an answer to the problems that he was facing, but rather it was an audience. Do you know even Job said in his book, Oh, that there, my words were written down. You know who wrote the book of Job? It wasn't Job, it was Moses. Do you know what's going to happen when Job gets to heaven? He's going to be so embarrassed, right? Like Elijah joined the club, right? Uh, why do we say that thing, right? I <laughs> Just think about it. Words you regret, right? That club, right? I mean, think about it. He's going to get to heaven. He's going to meet a group of people, and they're going to be like, Job, we were just so inspired by your story. He's going to be like, what? I love the book of Job. What? And one day, God's going to take Job aside and say, Job, what you went through. Help so many people with their suffering. You don't even realize it, Job, that your life had an impact that went far beyond your temple existence. Friends, I want you to understand something. Life is confusing, no question about this. But the work that God is doing in your life is something that exceeds far beyond just these 80 to 90 years of existence. Right? You see, Elijah needed an experience with God where he needed to still his heart. And do you know what God did? God didn't speak through the fire, through the wind, through the earthquake. God lowered his tone and said, Joe, excuse me, said Elijah. In fact, Ellen White says something so amazing. She says some powerful words right here. All who are under the training of God need the quiet hour for communion with their own hearts, with nature and with God. Three things with your own heart, with nature, and with God. And God will use these three components to minister to you. Continue. We must individually hear him speaking to the heart. When every other voice is hushed and in quietness we wait before him, the silence of the soul makes more distinct the voice of God. He bids us be still and know that I am God. This is the effectual preparation for all labor for God. You want to be a powerful witness at your college campus? Then you need to take a moment to be still. Real quick, can you give me an action word of the Great Commission? Give me one action word. Go. Anybody else? Teach. Baptize. Good. Make. Good. I expect all those answers. But you know, when you read the gospel commission in Luke, it says this, tarry in Jerusalem. Then go out to the world. It's the part of the gospel commission we sort of sidestep, which is, wait. That's an action word, too. Wait. And I love what Ellen White says right here. She says, this is the effectual preparation for all labor for God. In fact, friends, you know what's so amazing about the Sabbath experience? It blesses us and charges us up for the rest of the week. Do you know when God rested on the Sabbath, creation did not collapse? Did you know that? Your world is not going to fall apart when you rest on the Sabbath. Amen? Your existence isn't going to evaporate. The world will still be upheld. But you see, the very fact that the infinite God of the universe rested, and the world did not fall apart, is a lesson for us, too. We need to rest, too. Let's continue with this. Amidst the hurrying throng and the strain of life's intense activities, he who is thus refreshed will be surrounded with an atmosphere of light and peace. He will receive a new endowment of both physical and mental strength. His life will breathe out a fragrance and reveal a divine power that will reach men's hearts. You see, friends, God wants to do the work for you. He wants to do the work in you and through you. But he is calling you to take time apart. And those moments that you feel like, Lord, there is no time for me to commune with God. That is absolutely the most essential time that you need to commune with God that you need to spend with God. And the one anchor that has kept me in the faith, whereas many of my friends who were theology students and pastors and other individuals who were very influential in my own life, including my Sabbath school teacher, none of them are in the church anymore. But the one thing that has truly kept me amidst life's discouraging moments and defeats is that communion time with God. It has to be the number one most essential thing in your life where you're just like, Lord, I need to spend time with you. Do you know how much time to spend with God? My friend gave me a good analogy one day. He said, one day I was praying about it. I was like, Lord, I don't know how much time I should spend with you. Should I read a chapter, two chapters? Should I read three chapters, this or that? And he said, I was praying about it, and I felt impressed to go outside. It's in the morning. He said he walked outside, and he was looking around, didn't see anything. The sun was coming up. He's like, Oh, there's a nice sun right there. You know, whatever. There's, you know he lives in Cowtown. You know, there's cows over there. He's like, Oh, yeah. So he's about to go back in when he, all of a sudden he looks to the left and there's a flower. And he noticed something about that flower. You see, the night before the flower was closed. But when the sun was going up, the flower opened up. And once the flower opened up, it immediately began to track the sun wherever it went. And he said, I realized that I needed to spend time with God until I reached that place where I was opened up and tracking God. And that time can vary, but you'll know. You'll know I'm tracking His life will breathe out a fragrance and reveal a divine power that will reach men's hearts. That will reach men's hearts. Let's continue with this story. We're almost done. I want us to see how the story ends. Verse 13. God was speaking to the still, small voice. And so it was when Elijah heard it he could now hear God whispering you hear God whispering and when he had heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle went out and stood at the entrance of the cave suddenly a voice came to him and said to him okay so what are you doing here Elijah the conversation restarts Elijah repeats I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to stake my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king of Syria. And you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elijah, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Milah, who you shall anoint as a prophet in your place. And it shall be whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And what God revealed to Elijah was not just... Just this experience of encouragement. But now he was telling him, and here's the next few steps. I've laid out for you a structure. The first structure is this. You're going to have an influence on a pagan king. You're going to have an influence upon a political leader in Israel. And you are going to anoint your successor. And what happened is a structure was laid out to Elijah. And as Elijah would carry out this structure that the next few steps, the next phase of Israel would take place. You see, friends, God wants to give you the next few steps. But I think there is something here that's just important for us to take note of, and that is this. Elijah realized a few things, and that is this. The work was not dependent upon him. It was not dependent upon him. In fact, God had already been preparing people To work with this whole experience and revival in the land of Israel. Friends, I want you to understand something. You may feel alone in your ministry, but guess what? God is already preparing people. He is already preparing people. He has them ready. And I really believe even during this weekend, God will show you who those people are. And he wants to set up the next phase. You know, it's so amazing. I teach this to a lot of my young adults, and that is this every person to survive in their Christian experience needs three things. They need a Paul, a mentor. They need a Barnabas, a partner in ministry. They need a Timothy, someone they can disciple. Every person needs that. And in your experience, in your ministry, in your, uh, just your college life, when you set up that structure around you, you're going to find, man, I am being ministered to you And I can minister to others, a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy. You see, friends, Elijah began to understand what the next few steps of his life were. He began to understand how he should carry out the next phase of Israel's experience. God has been preparing the next phase of your ministry. And there are people he is preparing to bring into that phase. But he wants you to listen.